If you're not at a table, you're on a menu. And for indigenous peoples, it is very important to be at the table to ensure that our voices, our views, our solutions are heard at the table. listening to Amplifier, Raising Voices Against Rising Temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP26, and discuss what we can expect from this year's negotiations. Hi, I'm Meg Withers, and I'm here with Lauren Ballatin. For this week's episode, we're exploring the importance of Indigenous community representation in climate policy. COP26 is kicking off next week in Glasgow, Scotland, and on the agenda is the finalization of the Paris Rulebook, which describes how to implement the Paris Agreement. One article remains to be finalized, Article 6. This portion of the rulebook allows parties to collaborate as they work to satisfy their obligations for mitigating climate change. While the article mentions carbon trading, or buying and selling credits that permit a certain amount of emissions, many questions still remain about how to implement this. At COP25, parties were unable to finalize the ins and outs of Article 6, so it's likely that it will remain one of the most contentious points of negotiation this year. The premise of Article 6 is a valuable one, but Indigenous communities fear it could offer a loophole through which their lands and resources may be exploited without their permission or input. To learn more, we spoke with Ghazali Ohorella, an Indigenous rights advocate from Moluku, Indonesia who is already in Glasgow advocating for Indigenous rights in Article 6. Can you please start by telling us about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, so my name is Ghazali Ohorella, obviously. Um, I'm an Indigenous rights advocate uh, from the Maluku Islands. If you don't know where it is, I don't blame you. It's uh, 999 islands from between Australia and the Philippines with 2.2 million Indigenous peoples. and. I'm a product of that. I'm a, a descendant of the Alifuru people uh, of these islands. Having such a love for, for, for yeah, my indigenous uh, background and heritage that, uh, which actually was started when my mom actually took me to the UN while I was pretty much in diapers. She, um, she was advocating for indigenous rights, um, went in and out of the UN, and all of a sudden um, I fell in love with the work and then before that, I was actually laser focused on becoming an architect. Um, that's what I wanted to do. And as soon as it started to compute what, what the work was and talking to other indigenous peoples and, um, and, and learning their histories and their struggles and the work that they do, um, I pivoted and, and went to study um, yeah, law. One big blur, obviously, law school. And uh, yeah, so, I 
just love to empower and inspire indigenous peoples um, by just doing the work. And that's been, I've been doing all along and negotiations as well. So um, obviously Complement 60 is, is coming up, uh, which I'm negotiating uh, for these peoples on Article 6, uh, on oceans, human rights, and, uh, and other processes. And that's what I've been doing for almost 18 years, actually. And I could say that it has become my passion. Um, to yeah, to do the work, and um, I love nothing more than to um, yeah just roll up my sleeves, sleeves, spit in my hands. All right, let's do it. Let, let, let's let's try to make the world a better place for Indigenous peoples and and humanity in general. Can you describe Article Six of the Paris Rulebook for our listeners and why it is so important? That's a very good question. And I, and I think to be able to answer that, you need to be able to put Article 6 in, in the right perspective. Um, so obviously there's a Paris Agreement. If the Paris Agreement tells you uh, what needs to be done to uh, ramp up climate action and uh, reduce carbon emissions, then the Paris Rulebook uh, describes how states should do it. Article 6 is the final chapter, so to say, of uh, the Paris Rulebook. Uh, which talks about the international cooperation of states um, to achieve their ambitious goals, which is which are described in the NDCs, so the Nationally Determined Contributions. It is a very complex article because it was supposed to be finalized in, in Madrid at COP25, but there are so many uh, states uh, that have, they want to have a say in it, that, that ha have concerns about it, that they couldn't finalize it in Madrid and had to kick the can further down the road towards where we are at right now in Glasgow, COP26. Hopefully it will be finalized. Just to describe how complex the issue is and how this particular uh, article needs to be dealt with in a very good way uh, um, and agreed to between all parties and states that they're still continuing negotiations. Now, what Article 6 actually is, is a market mechanism. That, that that's uh, what what it is creating it's uh, it's to facilitate the states helping each other in terms of uh, achieving their ndcs how do they do that is by itmos or actually what what's what actually a lot of people call it are carbon credits it's like a credit system it's like a supply and demand that is what what they're, what they're, what they're creating it is actually meant for um, states to help each other right um but it is not meant for states that are from, for example, a developed country to compensate their, their emissions just by building or creating projects in other countries in exchange for, for their surplus of, of carbon credits. So in a way, could be a false solution for, 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 for climate change. And we've all also seen the, um, the previous attempts to do something similar to it to that yet under the Kyoto Protocol, yet the Clean Development Mechanism. Um, Red Plus um, also provided credits actually when you when you uh, did manifest projects to um, that are supporting sustainable development or um, clean energy. And but the problem is from indigenous people's uh, point of view um, has always been that most of these projects were not in line with the rights of indigenous peoples. So these projects, when they, for example, a, a um, hydroelectric uh, plant or um, a dam that they want to build in a country, 
it's being built under the idea of, yeah, this to fight climate change. However, um, you are displacing indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands, from their livelihoods, from their homes, and you're flooding their, their, yeah, their, their, their territories. And that is something that we want to preserve, of make sure that there are safeguards in, these, in this Article 6 negotiations on in this text that the rights of indigenous peoples and human rights are protected um, so that these projects are not being built just anywhere people want. Um, just making sure that people that, that do live there have rights, that they know that they have rights and that these rights are protected. That's a great segue into our next question, which is how would you like to see Article 6 change? Article 6 has two, no, sorry, three distinct elements. Um, it is 6.2, 6.4, and 6.8. Uh, so 6.2 is about accounting for, for these carbon credits, meaning is that uh, providing guidance on how these states are going to interact with each other in terms of achieving their uh, national determined contributions. Um, 6.4 is going to shape an oversight mechanism, so more of a top-down approach, which is called a sustainable development mechanism, centrally managed. And the text is mostly includes rules or modalities for this uh, market mechanism. And then 6.8 is a non-market mechanism, meaning just more a cooperative ways of, of trying to help each other with, with this, uh, with their NDCs. What is important, like I described before, for the inclusion of, safe, of safeguards and human rights and the rights of indigenous peoples is that there's a, you have to include a line or a paragraph in the text that says um, respecting the rights of indigenous peoples in the application of Article 6. For example, I'm just paraphrasing. So that it's under 6.2, um, the accounting for uh, these carbon credits, 6.4, this oversight mechanism, and 6.8, that the application of all these articles, that they have to take into account that they have to respect the rights of indigenous peoples. Um, so that's what we've been, uh, what we're fighting for actually is, is to, so that's why we have to go to Glasgow to, to talk to states and, and tell, tell them that they already had human rights obligations before they went to Glasgow, before they went to COP in, in Paris. And these human rights obligations is, is what they need to respect. So turning to COP26 a little bit more generally, what do you hope to see happen at COP26 in relation to indigenous groups and their representation? Yeah, my hope for indigenous peoples and First of all, I should say like hope is not a strategy. That's what I always say, hope is not a strategy. But I think uh, for indigenous peoples, obviously we're all coming out of a, a, a dark two years of, of COVID. And it's not the same as before. COP21, COP2, up until COP24, 25, there's a broad participation of indigenous peoples from all over the world in, in, the, in these uh, climate summits. We just have to, yeah, see what will, how, uh, who will show up for, for, um, for Glasgow, not only from the indigenous side, but also from the state side. A lot of states, mainly from the, from the, from the, um, yeah, the smaller uh, developing states um, are not able to participate to, or go to, to Glasgow. 
So you do see that there could be a shift in dynamic and shift in dialogues on important issues. Now, what my what I'd like to see happen in, at Compton Six for Indigenous Peoples is that again that we show tell the actual experiences and impacts of, of living in harmony with, with the environment, using that as a podium to um, yeah, explain why it is important that states, civil society, private sector uh, should listen to indigenous peoples uh, when it comes to uh, climate action, resiliency, uh, and, and mitigation. In terms of representation, obviously, it is something that as I believe Chief Orrin Lyons from the Haudenosaunee said best, if you're not at a table, you're on a menu or you're serving a menu. And for indigenous peoples, it is very important to be at the table to ensure that our voices, our views, our solutions are heard at the table, not at, not at a lunchroom table in the back of COP26, but actually at the negotiations table. So that is, what I hope, quote unquote, that uh, to, to, see, to see happen at Compensate, that these peoples are using every opportunity that is provided to them or create these opportunities um, in these processes to, yeah, to claim their stake, uh, that they're rights holders, that they have solutions, and that we need to be part of the dialogue and not just limit ourselves to a, for example, local communities and indigenous peoples platform. And it's, and it's my hope that indigenous peoples really uh, take the opportunity um, to, uh, to engage in all these processes and make sure that we're heard and that we, our voices are, or are, are, are words, our are solutions are in these documents or in these processes. So what could our listeners do to support indigenous communities representation and protection in climate negotiations? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because um, indigenous peoples, we don't have the same infrastructure like states or NGOs. We're, we don't have big media houses behind, uh, supporting us. And I think indigenous peoples and myself um, included, I think that the power of um, just the regular Joes, uh, uh, just, just your listeners listening to the what I have to say, or in the other indigenous peoples, yeah, just just being a um, to amplify our voices. So tweets or or uh, messages that we put out um, that you that you amplify amplify that. The funny thing is is that during these summits, the amount of negotiators and uh, diplomats that are on Twitter tracking developments should not be underestimated. They're super active on, on Twitter on, and on LinkedIn. And I see that as an opportunity. All right, well, because they're on that platform, why not make use of that platform to amplify the voices of and the concerns or the messages of, of indigenous peoples? And I think that is a very low threshold, entry level kind of way of supporting indigenous peoples in these negotiations. Um, just from, the, from, from your smartphone, no problem. From, for different processes, uh, for, for various Indigenous peoples, it is also very difficult to request or have a actual meeting with the government at COP. Um, so any 
any support for from for these calls from indigenous peoples to for um, yeah, this government to sit down with them uh, would be a help as well. Uh, and we've seen that happen. We've seen it happen, for example, in New Zealand and, and in Australia. For a very long time, they didn't want to sit down with uh, with the indigenous delegation from their respective countries. But as soon as they started to push out messages on social media, these governments and it got on obviously on the feeds of members of parliaments uh, and, and people of, of influence. And all of a sudden, uh, they, they were happy to, uh, to sit down with, with the indigenous peoples. So I think that th those are, are two things that could very much uh, be um, helpful for us as, as indigenous peoples on the ground at Company 6, that the listeners of this amazing podcast to, uh, yeah, to help us out with. So with that kind of um, idea of making sure that we are following you know, what's going on and we're amplifying the voices of people from diverse communities, where could I, our listeners follow you during COP26? Yeah, all right. So this is going to be, going to be a shameless plug, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter, uh, so it's um, uh, Gomuluku, so G-O-M-A-L-U-K-U. Go is obviously my personal last name. Mamaluku is where I'm from. Um, and I'm, I'm on all platforms. And I'm also linking all my, all my colleagues, trying to put out information, as much information as possible on social media. But the funny thing is what we're trying to do is we're trying to open up these negotiations. Is that making it transparent? Because it, for a lot of people, it, it is behind closed doors, don't know what's going on. And what we're trying to do is like, we do almost daily briefings uh, on social media or on Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter. Um, so yeah, Hindu Umaru Ibrahim, um, very good friend of mine uh, from Africa. She, she's, she's almost like royalty. Everyone wants to uh, be in, in a video, photo, or whatever with her. Um, she's also very good to, to follow. And there's many more, obviously. But as a good starting point, you know, again, that's what I said, shameless plug. Um, as a good starting point, uh, you can fo follow me and I'll try to do my best to yeah, keep people updated uh, throughout the, the negotiations. As Ghazali or Arella explained, countries are preparing to negotiate Article 6 over the next few weeks at COP26. These international negotiations often feel very abstract, but the decisions made in Glasgow, such as the language of Article 6, have direct implications for communities all over the world. One such community is the Sedulor Sikep indigenous community in Pati Central Java, Indonesia, a community that maintains a traditional way of life and is resisting the cement industry's expansion into their lands. We spoke with Ganarti, an activist and member of this community, and her translator and fellow activist, Dewey. Can you start by telling us about yourself and what you do with your organization? The network of people who care about the Kang Dang Mountains. Hello, selamat pagi. Uh, perkenalkan pengaranku atau nama saya Good morning. Gunarti. I'm Gunarti from Settlor Sikap Indigenous Community in Pati Central Java. I am a mother, a farmer, and I have grandchildren as well. JMPPK, or the Network of People Who Care About the Kending Mountains, and CCAP are a nurturing and caring sisterhood that defend Mother Earth. We are farmers. Farming is a form of gratitude to Mother Earth for her bounty. 
Farming is not only about living, but also a form of love to support other people in Indonesia who are our brothers and sisters. It is a form of taking care of humanity. Humanity needs to eat and to drink. It is a form of healthy earth. It is a basic way of life to live decently and properly. So we have to guard each other, not only human beings, but also other species like animals, trees, land, water, air. Each of them is a sentient being. We regard them as a living being. Settler Seacap treats others as equal, brother and sisters. What inspires you as an activist? I am just a woman farmer. I don't know the language of activism. What inspires us are our parents and our mother earth. My parent is still protecting us, although I already have grandchildren. Mother earth is giving us everything. She never asks for anything in return. So we do the mandate of our parent and of our mother earth. The step of our former predecessors is a true inspiration of our life. It is my responsibility as a wife, mother, and friend to my children. We are not having formal school because our formal schooling is the Mother Earth and our education. Settler Seacup is an indigenous community that has rules and norms and values which teaches us and caring for the land as a form of gratitude. So we ask that humanity also defends the earth. In Article 6 of the Paris Rulebook, international carbon trading is proposed. Although indigenous peoples often live within territories of rich biodiversity that governments seek to buy and sell for carbon trading purposes, Article 6 fails to include language about indigenous and human rights. How would you like to see Article 6 change? We felt no difference between the arrival of policy before and after. The law is good if it protects our belief in our language, but it should be put into implementation. It's like making a road. It should be useful for everyone. How are international climate negotiations at COP26 affecting you and your community? I don't understand the climate negotiation. You all can fight this for us all. Negotiate the best for planet Earth. What do you hope to see happen at COP26 in relation to indigenous groups? Our wish is not egotistical. Our wish is for humanity and other species. We all have rights. Every person should be responsible and should sit at the negotiating table because we have the rights to decide. Many people are suffering from the natural disasters. We should be preventative if Mother Earth is angry. We have to defend their life. What could our listeners do to support you, your community, and other indigenous groups in climate action? We wish that you people close to the UN, please send this message because we cannot go there to send this message of saving our planet. Saving this planet is our task. Our land and Mother Earth need our protection. We have to warn the government and the UN if they hurt the Earth. We should be critical of them. I am singing this. Mother Earth has given. Mother Earth has been hurt and exploited. Mother Earth will punish. Stari. 
the language of Article 6 will dictate the impacts it has on communities all over the world. As the article is negotiated this year, there are many opportunities. It could encourage cooperation among parties, and it could offer opportunities for growth, innovation, and quickened progress in their climate action efforts. But as Ghazali Orella described, dangers loom for indigenous communities, some of the same communities which have had to fight to save their lands, languages, and ways of life for centuries. However, with some smart negotiating from delegates at COP26, powerful anecdotes like those from Ganarti, and the support of listeners like you, we can protect indigenous communities, ensuring that in this case, climate action incorporates environmental justice. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Special thanks to Ghazali Oarella and Gunarti for joining us for this episode. You can learn more about their work by exploring the links in our show notes. You can also learn more about us on our website and our YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes as we continue to follow the negotiations that take place at COP26. This week's episode was reported by Meg Withers and Lauren Ballatin, and it was produced by Meg Withers. The translation for Gunarti's interview was provided by Dewey and recorded by Hallie Bradshaw. The music was provided by Zoller Burgerschmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern.